Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning is Psalm 131. Let's place ourselves under God's word. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. In our gospel reading from Luke's gospel, now as they went on their way, he entered a, he being Jesus, went He entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Covenant Presbyterian Church. It's a real joy to be here together with you this morning. It's my honor. I get to serve churches literally all around the world. And I have to confess, don't tell anybody, this is one of my favorite churches. Uh, I love working with your team. I love working with the lay people I've gotten a chance to be with. Um, It's one of the first churches I got got to work with, and it's such a joy. And I'm really grateful that I get to be with you this morning. Would you pray with and for me as we begin to dive into Psalm 131 this morning? Father, give us ears to hear you. Be our teacher. Give us eyes to see you, to trust that you're with us. Give us hearts tender enough to receive you and your word. Give us feet and hands courageous enough to live out what we hear for your name and your glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So as we turn our heads and hearts to the psalm, I want you to know my first memory of encounter with this amazing psalm was about 27 years ago. I was a young senior leader with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. In fact, I was the youngest in the country in an up-and-coming region. I had come to restart the work here in Texas, Oklahoma and Arkansas, and things were on the move. I was on the move. I had lots of questions, burdens, and dreams for my work, and my supervisor, Doug Stewart, had come to town, and we are going to spend a day, an entire day, at a friend's lake house, where I'd hoped I was going to be mentored. I would have my skills developed, and wisdom was going to be shared about leadership. I had set my sights pretty high. But instead, as soon as we got to my friend's lake house, Doug sat me down on a back chair on the porch with a single sheet of paper with a Psalm 131 written on it. He said, read this for a while. I'm going to take a walk. I'll be back in a couple of hours. 
I had two hours to read the shortest psalm in the Bible. He came back and we discussed it over lunch and he repeated that pattern two more times. I was alone with this psalm for about six hours that day. I confess I didn't get it, not one word, and I was frustrated. On the way back to my home in the car, I got cross and argumentative with Doug. I said, hey, I need leadership training. I need you to help me become the best I can be. Don't you know the burdens I'm carrying? Why did we waste the day reading just three verses of the Bible? I was mad. I was hurt. Like Martha, I was deeply worried and I would miss out on my chance to learn something and be a great leader. I was definitely not still or quiet. Doug listened to me with all the patience and love he had. He was not defensive or argumentative. He listened to my soul's cry. And when I was done with my venting and wrestling and stewing, he simply said, Brian, I'm not worried about your leadership. I think you'll know what to do at the right time. But I'm very worried about your soul. So Doug, with expert love and tender leadership, used this psalm to invite me into not just caring for my soul differently, but helping me reframe what I thought life was about. It has been a reframing my life ever since. And I think it may have saved my life, certainly has saved me from myself, from ambition, from constant wrestling, striving, anxiety, and worry. See, I think this psalm has two ways that it works on our souls, and I want to walk through both of those this morning. First, this psalm has a way of being a check on ourselves, what Eugene Peterson calls a pruning. It gets rid of those things that make our lives unruly and full of ambition. And second, the psalm offers an irresistible invitation that we enter rest, peace, and hope. Let's just start with this first verse. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy, my, occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Many translations render this first line as this, my heart is not proud. And you know what we say about people who say they're not proud? No humble person would ever deny that there's at least a kernel of pride in their heart. It's like our youngest son when he was a toddler. He'd be riding in the car in the back seat, and out of the blue, he'd scream, I'm not tired. It was a dead giveaway. In moments, we would have an asleep toddler in the back seat. It doesn't make sense, friends, to say in prayer, I'm not proud. It, it, it's not anywhere near the heart of prayer. I think it's not that the psalmist is declaring a state of being as much it is a decision to choose a way of being. When we pair the first half of the verse with the second, we begin to understand what's happening. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, he says. You see, the psalmist is admitting that there are things that go beyond his ability, that there are things beyond his pay grade, so to speak. It's a decision to a certain way of life, 
one that chooses to let God be God and to take our place in the world that's in keeping with the most important truths of our lives. God is creator and I'm creation. God is eternal and I'm temporal. God is powerful and I'm limited. To pray this psalm is to decide to let God be God, to let him run the universe, to let him run my life, let him provide for me day by day by day. It's a decision not to set my sights on things that are beyond my grasp because God's the only one who can and should reach that far. Eugene Peterson renders this verse in a way that brings emphasis to that decision. God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. Friends, you and I have no business trying to run the universe. No business even trying to run our neighborhood or even run our families. All of that is too marvelous, too powerful, too good for us. But this gets complicated when we begin to understand that the psalm was written by David, King David. What's beyond the pay grade of a king? If he doesn't think he should think too highly of himself or involve himself in weighty matters, what business do any of us have exerting ourselves into anything? But the psalmist is not an invitation to passivity. The decision to take our place in the world under God is not to abandon our roles, our callings in the world. We are called to be God's hands and feet in the world. Feeding the poor, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner, protecting the widow and the orphan. These are all our roles. We are still called to put our hands to the duties, tasks, and engagements of our various callings. But we're not to run the universe. That's God's job. And he's been doing it well before any of us were here, and he'll be doing it quite well just after we're gone. We may not understand what's going on. We may not even like what God seems to be doing. But I'm not running the roost, we pray. I'm not going to concern myself with what only God can really do and with what only he can comprehend. It's all too great for me, too marvelous for my comprehension. But how do we go about living our lives and being faithful to our callings in a world without overstepping our bounds? That's hard. I think it helps us to understand how the Hebrew mind understands the nature of a day. For thousands of years, the Hebrew culture considered the day to begin when the sun went down. Remember, our basic understanding of the day begins when the sun comes up or when our alarm clock goes off. Think about the mindset shift that happens by understanding that the day starts at sunset. The day does not begin with my, me and my activity, my agency or energy in the world. No, the day begins and I go to bed. It's like saying I'm not the most important thing going on in the world. The day will begin with my inactivity, and the God who never sleeps will be at work ruling the world and starting the day without needing me. Now, this doesn't mean our work is unimportant. It, doesn't, it just means that we are not, and our work is not, primary. 
in the world. And the Hebrew concept of the day holds so much dignity and value for our participation in his work, the unfolding of his rule and reign in the world. We wake up into the world in which God has already been at work while we sleep. And we awake into his invitation to us, lovingly, joyfully, and freely into his will and his way. Now, I admit, this is a countercultural way of living. You won't find this invitation in any of the business journals and self-help books or any Instagram followers you might chase. The advice of the world is seize the day, exert your power, take charge of your life. Peterson says that what's described in scripture as the basic sin, the sin of taking things into our own hands, being our own God, grabbing what is there while we can get it, is now described by our culture as basic wisdom. But David, on the other hand, the author of the psalm was king, remember. He had to wake up each morning and make a decision that influenced the political, social, religious, and family life of every person in the region. Again, the psalm is not an invitation to passivity. But this psalm for David is a reminder to himself that while he's king, he's not God. It's a check on his ego, his ambitions, and his runaway dreams for himself. Rather, it's an invitation to humility. There's a way of going about your life under God and for God rather than for ourselves. This balance is hard. Maintaining a proper relationship to my work and calling while not overstepping my bounds is for me a daily struggle. In part because I really care about the work I do. And you probably do too. Your work has consequence in the world. And there are issues going on that really matter. Sometimes reminding myself that I'm not God is not enough to curb my appetite for success. My craving for the feel-good sense of being noticed, seen, and praised. I think we're all sort of like that. The next step for me, friends, is getting still and getting quiet. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, the psalmist says. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelously for me. So I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Calm and quiet does not come naturally in my world. There's nothing naturally calm and quiet about my family, my job, or my commute. All of life seems to awaken my inner infant, and my soul gets noisy, unsettled, and fussy no matter what's going on. It takes work for me to get quiet. For most people, it's a deliberate choice that happens with planning, care, and decision. It's a discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. In my doctoral research, I studied exemplar leaders, people who are engaged in ministry, who are flourishing spiritually and emotionally. What was fascinating was that in all of these people I studied, there was only one specific spiritual discipline that was common to all of them. They cultivate the ability to hear God's voice by taking regular retreats. 
Part of their habit as leaders, their discipline in the world, was to remove themselves from their daily activity, to literally put the world on mute. So they could cultivate, again, the ability to hear the voice of Jesus. It's hard to be quiet while holding a noisy phone constantly begging for your attention and sending you messages about your relative value in the world. It's impossible with the constant barrage of Fox News or CNN blaring from your television telling you what to believe. We need to silence the world and its message about our value, our security, and all of those lies that come at us day by day by day. Quiet and calm are not ignorant of real issues in the world. They simply do not let the world around them determine what's important, what's valuable, or true. I think this is the core challenge of all discipleship, fundamental to our relationships with God. Jesus talks about this in what's called the parable of the soils. There are four soils, the hard pan road where the seed sits on top. The word can't penetrate and it's stolen by the birds. There's rocky soil where the seed sprouts up where there's little root, the trials of life burn it up and it goes away. And then there's good soil where the plant can flourish and produce a crop 30, 60, 100 times what was planted. And still there's another soil, the weedy soil, where the plant grows up among the weeds. It still lives and still produces a crop, but the real fruitfulness is choked out in competition with the weeds. I think the soil describes most of us. It certainly describes me. It's endemic to American Christianity. Jesus's commentary on our weedy soil was that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things choke out our lives and make it unfruitful. Cares of this world, deceitfulness of wealth, and a desire for other things is loud in my life. Like I was 27 years ago when I wanted more, more leadership, more skill, more notice, more place, more security. We all wrestle with this in some ways, I think. And it does not take a careful reading of the word to know that the author of the psalm, David, wrestled with this too. He struggled with his family, with his temptations, with the weight of all of his work, and yet he chose to cultivate a life of quiet, of stillness, and the growing up confidence of a relationship with God. Can we take another trip into the Gospels? There's a good example for us there, too, in the story that we heard from today from this pulpit. I think it's a good picture of the choices you and I each have to make every day. Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha, and as was his custom, he's teaching while the meal is being prepared. We learn that Mary's at Jesus' feet, soaking in every word she can get. Martha is a buzz of activity. The passage says she's worried and distracted, like weedy soil. She's got lots of preparation to do. Like many of us, she uh, has the cares of the meal, the deceitfulness of the promise of a perfect evening, all have her tied in knots. What comes out of her in that moment is hurt, anger, in competition. Don't you care that Mary is leaving me to do all the work, she complains. See, Martha had a choice. 
it probably was not between making dinner and sitting at Jesus' feet. For whatever reason, it was her night to cook. It was her house after all. But she had a choice nonetheless. I think it was the moment that she got Jesus' attention. Perhaps a better way of saying it is the moment Jesus noticed Martha working so hard. Jesus always notices, doesn't he? Martha chose in that moment to focus on herself. Can't you see that I'm doing everything? Perhaps in that moment there was an opportunity to simply tell Jesus the truth. Jesus, I'm so busy and I'm afraid I'm missing out. What if I miss the words that you have for me? I want to be with you, but I also need to make this meal. I don't know how to do both. Perhaps Jesus could have calmed her heart and stilled her soul, assured her that she is seen, noticed, and will not be left out. She matters. I think that was Jesus' invitation to her. We know what Jesus responds to what she really said. She said, you're worried and distracted by many things. Mary has chosen better. It will not be taken away. Mary chose, and Martha was invited to make that very same choice, a singular focus on Jesus, a decision to let Jesus rule their house, their neighborhood, their family, and their life. That is always the better way. It's the way of calm, of quiet, even in the midst of making dinner for an unexpected guest. The picture of this weaned child is not that we stay small, dependent, and infantile. Rather, it's a picture of a person who can now be at peace enough to enjoy a relationship with their parent, confident that the parent knows what they need and is loving enough to provide it. You need food, clothing, meaning, value, place in this world. It's a word picture of seek first the kingdom, and I'll give you everything that you need. The invitation is to a still and quiet heart that lets God be in charge of the very real cares, concerns, and troubles of the world and of our lives. And in a way that cultivates greater relationship and intimacy with God himself. Arthur Weiser, a theologian, says, No desire now comes between you and your God as you live the song, for you're sure that God knows what you need before you ask him. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding the mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her sake, so the worshiper learns to desire God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his wishes and desires. His life's center of gravity has shifted. He now rests, no longer in himself, but in God. A weaned child can now say no to the cares of this world. I can get involved, but they're not mine to fix. A weaned child can say no to the deceitfulness of wealth. I'll be content with what I have, and God, my Father, will provide all I need. The weaned child can now order his desires so there's no longer driven to achieve, to attain, or to control. I'm now free to place my hope in something worthy of my life, God himself. And that's how this psalmist ends. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's an invitation 
to put our trust in God. Friends, the psalm is not an invitation to passivity, where we do not put our hand to the duties, tasks, and engagements of our various callings. This invitation, rather, the promise is that we can do it all with rest and peace. Confidence that we can, of one who puts their hope in the Lord, who loves us more than we could ever ask or imagine. In the midst of my life, with all of its cares and concerns, with all of its duties and burdens, we can still and quiet our soul before God. God's got this. God's got me. I will trust him. For David, the king, I think this psalm served for him like a mini retreat. A, a moment in his life, a, a literal 30-second reminder that he wasn't alone. That there's something more important, something more powerful and challenges us to face. I think this is how this short little psalm worked in King David's life. Purposefully, just three little verses he could carry through the day. A mini retreat from the cares of the world and the burdens and the siren call of wealth and the constant desire for things other than Jesus. Friends, this is how this psalm has become in my life after spending six hours with it some 27 years ago. I carry it with me everywhere. It's with me. It's now in me. A little touchstone that connects me back to the very real love of the Father. And this morning, as we close in prayer, I invite you to join me in praying this psalm as a mini-retreat, as a reminder that, yes, we're called to invest in all that God's doing in the world, but God is the God of the universe, and we are his children in it. We can put our hope in him. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. Amen.